right. Well, welcome to worship today, everyone, at all of our locations. We're really glad you're here, and uh, we're excited about what, what journey we begin today. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Did you know that's the heart of Christianity, those three proclamations? He has died. He is risen. He will come again. And today we begin a 12-part study about the last part of that three-part declaration about the fact that Christ will come again. We're going to do that by studying the book of the Revelation. Now, there's probably no book that has inspired more confusion, more curiosity, more dread and outright horror than this book. And yet, that's not why it was written. It may surprise you, while, although it does have appropriate warnings, and we'll see those as we come to them. And while it does give us some pretty intimidating images, this book was written primarily to comfort Christians who were going through really rough times and to remind them that their redemption was drawing near and to remind them to hang in there and be faithful to God. As we study this together, I pray it will do that for us, that you will be encouraged in your belief in the second coming, that you will be, uh, have your faith bolstered, that you will be motivated to remain faithful to Christ no matter what is going on in your life. Now, if you take a trip to Europe to see some of the major sites, cities, cathedrals, etc., places of interest, what you'll discover is that there's basically two different approaches or philosophies to that, right? Some of you have done this, and maybe you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, one approach is to say, we're going to do the bus tour. The bus tour is going to introduce you to like eight different countries in about 10 days. And man, it is fast and furious, you got to be up early in the morning, suitcase packed, sitting beside your door. Got to be ready to load, eat breakfast on the bus, zoom, 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 push, 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 because there's so much to see. We're in one country today. We'll be in another country tomorrow. Everything's planned out. It is moving fast. And some people do Europe that way, and you can certainly see a lot when you do it in that fashion. But there's another approach that my family and I uh, prefer, really, and that is not to try to see everything because you hope that maybe you'll be able to go back one day. And so let's not try to see everything. The philosophy is, let's really experience this. So you find a quaint little town, perhaps you rent a car, maybe you do some day trips, you get to know the locals, <coughs> you have conversations, maybe you even get to go in the homes of some of the local people. You find a quaint little cafe down on that cobblestone street on the corner and you slowly sip the cappuccino as the world goes by and you really experience Europe. Well, I want to tell you, while I prefer that second approach, I got to tell you, in this study we're doing, 
we're going to be following the first approach. Everybody clear on that? We can only have time in 12 weeks to hit the major themes. I could spend years in this book. It's a book I've lived with intimately and do every week. I memorized it back in 2007. I recite it every Monday. I meditate on it. I live in it. I wrestle with its themes all the time. We could spend years in this book. But for this particular trip to Europe or to the Revelation, we're going to move fast and furious. I want you to get the major themes. And maybe sometime in the future, uh, we'll have a chance to sit down and sip the cappuccino a little bit. So if you have your Bible open, let's jump right in. I'm going to be your tour guide today on this tour. And my job is to keep us moving. Look at what the first verse says. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. Now, let's stop right there quickly. If you have a Bible open, I want to get you, if you underline in your Bible, underline two things, please. First of all, the word revelation. Would you underline that word? Now, I want to see a show of hands. Does anybody's Bible have the word revelations right there? Anybody have it in the plural? I don't see any hands anywhere. Okay, that's good. Because if you do, it's wrong. There's no ancient manuscript that has revelation with an S on it. And yet it's bizarre to me. As Christians talk about this book, it seems that over 90% of Christians call this the book of revelations. Now, I'll admit, that's a pet peeve of mine, okay? So if you call it Revelations in front of me, uh, I don't know what I'll do, but I'll do something weird, all right? Just to let you know, that's not the name of this book. It's the Revelation. It's singular. It's not plural. So let's at least call it by its right name. It's the Revelation of uh, Jesus Christ. The second thing I want you to underline here is the word soon. Would you underline that? Now, soon, this was written probably somewhere uh, in the 90s AD, early 90s AD would be my guess. It's what most scholars that are reputable would say. That means it's been, wow, roughly almost 2,000 years. And he said, this is happening soon. So, hmm, what do you make of that? Was he wrong? Maybe he was just wrong. Some have concluded that. What is going on here? Was this a book for the people in the first century or the people in the 21st century? And the answer is yes. Yes, it's both. What we're going to see about prophecy, and this is one of the incredible tensions when it comes to studying prophetic books. It's like driving on a plane and looking at mountain ranges in the distance. And there's one lower range that you get to first, and there may be intermediate ranges, and then huge mountain ranges beyond that. And eventually, you're going to see and experience them all if you keep on driving. And the revelation is like that. This book was relevant for the people in the first century. They were going through very tough times, and you're going to hear a lot more about that as we go through the book, some of the things they were going through simply because of being followers of Jesus. But this also has some future fulfillments in it that we haven't gotten to yet. 
And one of the tensions is to try to figure out what is meant to be for the first hearers, what was particularly relevant to them, and what is universal and what is still to come. So, I'm glad that you've highlighted those things or underlined those things in your Bible. Now, let's keep the pause button push for a moment. John is the author. In case you're not aware, this is the apostle who wrote five books in our New Testament. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote the letters called 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And then he wrote this book called Revelation. But when he writes this, he is exiled to an island called Patmos. I want you to see a map here, and this is kind of a wide shot, but I want you to see that way down here, this is called the Aegean Sea, way down here is a little tiny island. It's about 13.15 square miles, and there was mining that went on there. And this is where the Roman Empire sent political offenders, people they wanted to get rid of. It was called being banished. You say, well, why didn't they just kill him? Well, some legends say they tried to kill the Apostle John, but they weren't able to. I, I, some legends are reliable and good and accurate, some are not. I kind of doubt the accuracy of that particular one. What I think would happen was they knew that it would be better for them just to banish him than to kill him. He was so beloved. And they knew that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so the Roman government wasn't oblivious to the fact that every time they killed a Christian, it didn't vanquish Christianity, it just made it grow more. People got inspired by those martyrdoms. And so they said, let's just get this guy away from here so he can't have any more influence. So he's way down here on this little island, banished, and he has been the overseer. In fact, he identifies himself as elder in 2nd and 3rd John, two of the letters he wrote. He's the overseer, that's the idea there, of seven of these churches. Now let's see those up close. These seven churches, and they're well-connected by these amazing Roman roads, which were fabulous and well-maintained, and they begin here in Ephesus, where John was particularly known for a while as the pastor, but then he became the overseer of all of these. And they're kind of in the order that they appear in the book, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. You can see they kind of go in a clockwise circular fashion here. Those are the seven churches to whom he wrote as he's exiled on that island. Now, verse 2 reads, who testifies to everything he saw, that is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. Now, did you notice there in verse 3, there's a special blessing promised to those who hear. And originally, this was read to the congregation. They didn't have printing presses. Uh, Everybody didn't have a copy to take home with them. It was read to them, and so they listened to it. And it promises a special blessing. But let's be honest. Throughout history, church history, 
this book doesn't always seem to have been a blessing. In fact, it's inspired a lot of horror. It's inspired a lot of bad movements. It's inspired a lot of twisted beliefs. Uh, This book has been the source of a lot of church division. So I I want to talk to you now briefly about some possible hindrances to blessing. Why would this book sometimes not seem to be a blessing? Well, let me mention a couple of reasons. First of all, its literary genre is one with which most of us are not familiar. Now, genre is just a word that means a style of writing, a style of of literature. The Jewish people understood apocalyptic writing. And if you're curious, and I really encourage you to go do this, you can find these books online, you can read some Jewish apocalyptic writings. I would mention four that would be interesting to you. Enoch, the Assumption of Moses, Fourth Ezra, and the Apocalypse of Baruch. Now, to everybody listening, I'm not recommending to these to you as inspired scripture. They are not. Did everybody hear that? What I am doing is recommending that you read them so you can get a little better flavor. You can get some examples of what apocalyptic literature was really all about. But this style is foreign to most people, and so some people have really been critical throughout church history. The great Jerome, the Latin scholar who translated the Bible from Greek and Hebrew into the Latin, what was called the Vulgate in the 5th century AD, he said, Revelation has as many mysteries as it does words. Martin Luther, the great Reformation scholar and leader, quipped, Revelation is no revelation to me. And then he suggested that maybe it ought to be kicked out of the canon of Scripture. Now, let's face it. When you come to it and read it, all these bizarre images are coming at you. You've got stars falling from the sky like fig trees fall from, figs fall from a fig tree in late season. You've got a beast that is 666. You've got a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns whose tail sweeps a third of the stars out of the sky. You've got four horses of the apocalypse, one white, one red, one black, one a pale sickly green. What are all these images supposed to mean? You've got a bottomless pit where smoke ascends out of it forever and ever. And you've got locusts coming out of it and tormenting people for five months. And you begin to read all of these things. This is like a multi-sensory experience. I would suggest to you there's no book in the Bible better suited for this modern video age than the Revelation. I mean, it is like a cosmic opera. It is multi-sensory. It doesn't just affect your ears. It gets your whole senses involved. You say, Pastor, how can anybody ever understand that? I believe the basic message of Revelation is not that difficult to understand. Now, some of you think I'm crazy for saying that, But I think you're going to agree by the time we're finished with this book. The main message is not that difficult. Here's the main message. You want me to give it to you right now? Maybe you can just skip the whole series. Here's the main message. The Lord our God, the omnipotent, reigneth, and he's coming again. That's the message. 
Hey, if you got that, you're good to go, right? As long as you're ready. The Lord our God, the omnipotent, reigneth, and he's coming again. You'd better be ready. The key to understanding the book of Revelation is the Old Testament. Every single paragraph of this book is rooted significantly in other parts of Scripture. That's why Eugene Peterson says there isn't anything in the 66th book of the Bible that isn't found in the previous 65. You may or may not agree with Eugene Peterson about that, but I want to tell you this, out of the 404 verses in this book, there are over 500 references to the Old Testament. In fact, you say, well, pastor, what's the best book for us to buy so we can kind of trek with you here? Well, I've put 91 possibilities that are in my personal library that I've used in preparation for this. There are 91 books. You can get them right off of our website. You can download them. They're right on the gracefellowship.com website. You can download them there as you look at the Revelation series. Please don't read all of them. They're not all worth reading. Please don't go out and buy all these books. Please do not do that. The best commentary you can have on the Revelation is a good reference Bible. It has references in the margin that will show you how this is connected to the Old Testament. That's the best thing you can do. Let me give you a quick example of what I'm talking about. Right here in verses four and five. It says, John to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. By the way, that's a reference to God the Father, him who is, who was, who is to come. It kind of reminds us of Exodus 3, where God said, I am that I am. That's all captured in these three phrases here, that old Hebrew phrase that God gave Moses. And from the seven spirits before his throne. Now, if you're a literalist, this book will drive you nuts. You'll need medication. The seven spirits before his throne. Seven is a special number in the book. It talks about, it's the perfect divine number. It talks about what something is in its essence. This is a reference to the Holy Spirit. And from Jesus Christ, who's the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. That's a reference to Jesus. So do you get the reference there to the Godhead? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? But it's not in that order, is it? Did you catch the order? It's different here. It's Father, Spirit, and Son. Now, if you don't know your Old Testament, well, that probably just go by you. But if you've studied the tabernacle that God gave to his people, you can read about this in Exodus. You'll see there that if you go from the center of the tabernacle, what was called the Holy of Holies, which represents God the Father, and you move from center to circumference, the next step out is called the holy place, where there's a golden lampstand, a seven-pronged lampstand, which signifies the Holy Spirit. And then if you keep moving out from center to circumference, you'll get out to the outer court where the brazen altar is, the largest piece of furniture in the tabernacle, which is where sacrifice took place, where atonement was made for sins, which represents Jesus Christ and his atoning work on the cross. Father, Spirit, Son. 
The order is different here because it intends to signify something, that no one can know the Son any longer except through the Spirit. And no one can pierce into the mysteries of God the Father except through the power and glory of the Holy Spirit. But we only know those things by knowing the Old Testament. All throughout this book are examples just like that little one I gave you. But here's the point. I'm making the point that this type of literature is difficult because we're just not familiar with it. B, a second reason it may not be a blessing to some people is that it's easily abused and misunderstood. As I said, no other book of the Bible has sparked more strange and bizarre teachings than the book of Revelation. And some of that is understandable because you open it up and it hits you with all these metaphors and images and colors and dreams and visions and pictures and sounds and and we're just not familiar with it. And so we usually start trying to interpret it not by looking at the Old Testament, but by looking at our surroundings and contemporary events. And so we we start looking around us and go, oh, what could this mean? And so the locusts in chapter 9 become Apache helicopters. And so the, you know, the beast becomes Apple Corporation, you know, and they're going to they're going to stamp us. That's the beast. They're going to get us. And, and the Antichrist becomes Justin Bieber. <laughs> really? That's what some people are saying and teaching. Now, I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prove it to you. I'm going to prove to you that the, I, I hate to let this out on the very first day. But I'm going to prove to you that Justin Bieber is the Antichrist. I mean, look at the math, people. Do the math. One, two, three, four, five, six, six letters. One, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five. There it is. How can you deny that irrefutable evidence? And you know what? This ticks me off. He tried to throw us off his trail not long ago. He changed his middle name to Drew because he knew some of us were getting on his trail and about to figure out that he's really the Antichrist. Now, I want you to look at your neighbor right now and smile and say, thank God he's just kidding. Okay, would you do that? Thank God he's just kidding, right? But that's the kind of things you get when people begin to just try to interpret this book instead of through the Old Testament, through their current events. A generation ago, It wasn't Bieber, it was Ronald Wilson Reagan. Six letters in each name. There was a huge movement going around. And before that, it was poor old Anwar Sadat for different reasons. And then Henry Kissinger. And before that, it was Stalin. And before that, it was Napoleon. And on and on and on the list goes. People try to piece the puzzle together by looking at their current surroundings. And they study tank movements in the Middle East. And they study the European League of Nations and say, how's it all coming together? G.K. Chesterton put it this way, though St. John saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. And that is absolutely right. But I'm declaring to you that the people, the ordinary common people, not Bible scholars, who sat in the congregation in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, and the other churches and heard this letter from John read to them would have immediately known what it meant. I'm going to 
illustrate that for you. I want you to imagine, we're in the year 2015 right now, but I want you to imagine that it's 2,000 years from now. And you're reading 2,000 years from now something that happened in the year 2015 in Cleveland, Ohio, and Oakland, California. You got it? Cleveland and Oakland, 2015, and you're reading about it. And here's, here's what you read. The great cavalier, the King James, whose number is 23, who once ruled the earth for 42 months in Miami, had now returned home by the Great Lake to build a dynasty that would last for a 1,000 years. With great power and precision, he ruled over the mighty Celtics and the Hornets and the Timberwolves who wanted to devour him. It seemed even from Cleveland, he might rule the hoop world again until the mighty warriors of the Golden State swarmed him and devoured his flesh in six. And the glory of the mighty cavalier and its king named James was laid low. Now, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. In fact, can I see a show of hands? Who, I'm not going to ask you to tell me, but if you think you know what I'm talking about in that, would you just raise your hand? Hundreds, hundreds of people think you know what that is. Now, some of you don't because you don't follow NBA basketball. And so you don't have the context and the background. And if you tried to interpret that, you'd be lost. You go, okay, 23, is he talking about a day of the month, a lake? Uh, is that Lake George? Or what, what is that? But if you know the context, you know a little bit of the code, you know, LeBron James, where's the number 23 that he spent a few years in Miami where he won two NBA championships, but he came back last season to Cleveland, his sort of hometown, and they went all the way to the finals, but they were beaten in six games by the Golden State Warriors. You knew that immediately. You didn't need to go study that. It made sense because you knew the code. The same is true as we study Revelation. John writes this book, but he can't just send it out in plain language. He's a political prisoner. Roman guards and soldiers and officials are going to read every word of what he writes. He's an influential guy in these churches. And if he were to write, you know, that Emperor Domitian thinks he's hot stuff. He thinks he's got real power and control, but I want to tell you, we know that King Jesus is still ruling and reigning, and he's going to totally vanquish that old beast someday soon. If he had written that in plain language, he'd have probably been executed immediately for treason. But he wrote it in a code language where when that pagan Roman official read it, he just scratched his head and concluded, that old man John is crazy, man. His head has been baking out in the sun way too long. He's going nuts. And he let it go. You've got to understand the codes. And so you've got code numbers. 12 always represents the people of God. 12 and its multiples. Seven. So you've got seven churches and seven stars and seven letters and seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls and seven visions and seven thunders. And Jesus in chapter 5 has seven horns and seven eyes. And you've even got seven blessings, if you read carefully, scattered throughout the whole book. Numbers are significant here. It's the number for 
perfection and divinity. Number six is the incomplete number or the number of extreme evil. And so 666 becomes the code number for this beast who persecutes Christians and puts them to death. Five is the number for penalty. If you study carefully, you'll read that there are five, there are all the major punishments are in fives. For instance, in chapter nine, where locusts come up and torment people, they do it for five months. Four is the number of the earth or the world. Angels stand at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. That's always what it signifies. Two is the number for witness. You have two witnesses in chapter 11. One is the number for unity. Fractions, whether it's three and a half or a third, represent incompleteness. Here's a part of it, but the full thing's not here yet. And there's a color code. Pale green represents death. So you've got a pale horse in chapter 6. Dark green in chapter 4 is this rainbow that surrounds the throne of God. It represents life. White is for purity or conquering. Red is warfare. Black is famine. Scarlet means sin and so on and so on. And then there's an animal code. And the tour bus is moving fast. I don't have time to go through all of this. But you know who the meanest, vilest creature is in the whole book of Revelation? The frog. That's right. Chapter 16, there were three frogs that came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs, it says. And right after that, the final cataclysmic battle happens. The frog is the most vile of all the creatures. And then there's the eagle who's always bringing bad news. But the tour bus is moving. We gotta move on. Now, very, very quickly, I wanna mention what are some of the blessings that we hope to receive as a community? One is that we're gonna see Jesus a whole lot more clearly, especially in his divinity. When you study the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, you get a real sense of the humanity of Jesus, but also of his divinity, but it especially focuses on his humanity. In the Revelation, you're gonna see the deity of Jesus in full display. In fact, look with me at verse 12 and following. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and those, by the way, represent those seven churches. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. Son of man, someone who looked human enough, but he is dispensed with the plain clothing. He now has the garment of a high priest. He's one with all dignity according to this. Verse 14, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. That hair, white, represents his eternal nature and his deity and the respect that is due him. He's the personification of wisdom. His eyes are like blazing fire. Think of that. He's omniscient. He sees through all the shams and hypocrisy of our lives. And by the way, for everyone who is not totally walking with God, this book is gonna be a tremendous challenge because you're gonna see Jesus not as the meek and lowly one, but as the conquering king whose eyes burn through every human mask and facade 
and they can strike terror in your heart. Verse 15, his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. This bronze always represents judgment. The glowing, he's coming to judge. It also represents strength and stability. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. So again, there's a message. He's got the churches and their leaders firmly in his grip. And out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. The sword was the special weapon of Rome, of course. What you're gonna see in this book is Jesus has a sword coming out of his mouth. It cuts his enemies to death, but it is life to those who receive it. His face is like the sun shining in all its brilliance. That's describing the glory of the exalted Christ. His glory. And we see him as we see his face. And when I saw him, John says here, I fell at his feet as though dead. Now remember who's writing this. This is the one who was probably the closest earthly friend of Jesus. And the last time we see him in the Gospels, he, he's, he's kind of hanging out on the evening of the Last Supper, just chilling with Jesus and the other disciples, feeling apparently very comfortable. And here, he's falling on his face in front of King Jesus and groveling on the floor as a dead man. Studying this book is gonna help us see Jesus more clearly. Second, we will be ready for Jesus' return. We're going to be ready. The question people want to know when they come to this book is, when is Jesus coming back and what's it going to be like? Because I really want to know, because I want to do what I want to do until then. But then if you'll tell me when it is, then I'll kind of get things straightened out. But you know, all you get in this book is the word soon. I kind of like that. Because as a parent, I learned how to use that word pretty well. Dad, when is uh, dinner going to be ready? Soon. When are we going to be there? Uh, Soon. Sooner than the last time you asked, for sure. Okay. When are we going to get to go play on the playground? Uh, Soon. Soon. When is vacation? Soon. Soon. And as a parent, from my perspective, Soon is soon, but to someone who's waiting, it can really seem like a long time. When Jesus was asking the Gospels when he was coming back, you remember what he said? He said, I don't know. Only the Father knows. That's the only time, by the way, that Jesus ever said he didn't know something. And some people believe that when Jesus said that, he was just kidding. It was like he said, I don't know. And then he kind of turned and winked. (laughs) Yeah, I really do know. And you can figure it out too if you just obsess enough and read enough of the latest popular books and go to enough prophecy conferences. You can figure it out too. But you really got to make it your life goal. And then you can figure it out. No, when he said he didn't know, he was telling the truth. So he would like for us to kind of put away our calendars and begin to focus on how to live faithfully for him. Here's the right question we will be asking. The right question. 
How can I be a faithful follower of Jesus who is ready for his return? And that's the goal I want us to accomplish in this study. How does Jesus want us to live as we faithfully wait for his return? Now, as we quickly wrap up, there are three ways, and this is gonna get very personal now, that I believe God will bless you personally through this study. Here we go. For some of you, the message that you're gonna get through the revelation is be warned. As we study this together, you see Jesus more clearly who he really is, (laughs) that when he comes back, he's not coming back to be beaten and criticized and ostracized and cursed, but he's coming back crowned king of kings and lord of lords, the first, the last, the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. When you see that, you're gonna be freaked out, to use the theological term for it. You're going to be unnerved by that. It's probably a good thing. You need to be, quite frankly, because some of you have totally ignored Christ in your life, and you need to go on this journey through Revelation because you need to be warned. And over and over again, we're going to get warnings as we study this book. And we're going to learn that Jesus is not some Mr. Rogers figure who walks the streets of gold in heaven with his sweater vest and loafers and sings, please won't you be my neighbor? That's not Jesus. Some of you think that's Jesus and you think he doesn't take your sin seriously you're gonna get a real different picture of Jesus, folks, in this book. He's got a sword coming out of his mouth. His eyes are like blazing fire. He sees everything you're doing. And his feet are like bronze glowing in a furnace. He is coming in judgment. We need that warning, some of us. But secondly, uh, for others, as we study this message together, uh, this is what we're gonna get. We're gonna be comforted. We're going to be comforted. Because listen, some of the Christians in Asia Minor, these original Christians who heard this message, they were going through hard times. Do you know they had trade unions back then? And in order to have a job and be a part of the trade union, you know what you had to do in Ephesus, for instance? You had to worship the emperor. And Domitian had gone crazy with this emperor worship thing. Not all the Caesars did that, but occasionally it was brought back into vogue and some Caesars would insist on emperor worship. In fact, they even would sign their letters, I, Domitian, your Lord and your God. And so you had a a deity there. You had to worship that deity. Pay homage if you were going to be a part of the trade union and keep your job. If you refuse to do it, you're gone. They were hurting people because they refused to worship the patron idol of the trade union. Others had friends or family who had lost their lives in the arena as they were fed to the lions in the amphitheater. Others had friends or family who had been banished to one of the mines to literally be worked to death, and they were trying to hang on and believe in Jesus they're wondering, God, it sure doesn't look like you're in control of this. Can we be totally honest for a moment? 
Some of you feel exactly that same way right now in America. Boy, this book is relevant. Boy, this book is relevant for this very time. There's a whole host of Christians who believe that this is one of the most cataclysmic moments in history. Even this very month of September, they believe all kinds of <coughs> crazy things are about to break loose and you see your country getting away from you and you see people compromising with the world and you see everything that you thought was nailed down coming loose. You need comfort. You see members of your own family bailing out selling out to the world. And you think, oh Lord, how long? How are we gonna hang on here? You need comfort. But here's the final word for all of us. The message is gonna be, be ready. It all boils down to two words, be ready. Jesus said in Luke 12, 40, you must also be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. And that's always gonna be the challenge for us. So as we close today, let me just ask you this question. Are you ready right now? Let's suppose that right now the trumpet sounded, the sky was split, and Jesus, this reigning, conquering king, returned in glory. My simple question to you this first week, and I'll have questions for you every week, but my question today is, are you ready? If you're not, that should be on the top of your list. You've been putting off opening your life to Christ. You've been putting off dealing with those issues in your life. Today ought to be the day that you allow Jesus' lordship in your life and live every day surrendered and sold out for him. Father, I ask in Jesus' name, that you would do all of these things in us as we study this amazing book together. Help us to fall in love, Lord, with you and your word. Help us to love you with a first love, a fresh love, a surrendered kind of love. Help us to live every day, oh God, sacrificially and fully surrendered to you because your kingdom matters. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen and amen.